Okay. If you have Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 3. We've been going through the Gospel of John. And today we'll finish up chapter 3. So I'm going to, today I'm going to cover verses 22 to 36, the end of the chapter. So if you would, follow along as I begin reading. <clears throat> After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at um, Ainon, near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Uh, this was before John was put in prison. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And this is, and this is now complete. He must become greater. I must become lesser. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what has been seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accredited, excuse me, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent, speak the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth that's in your word. I ask that you use me today, Lord, to speak your word to your people in a life-giving manner. Amen? So we see some competition going on here, at least in, at least in the heart of John's disciples. Jesus begins doing the work of ministering, and John the Baptist's disciples, they feel threatened by this. Verse 26 says, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, obviously this is Jesus, right? Look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. So why is this? Why, why would John the Baptist's disciples feel threatened? Well, they're human beings and this is how we think and all too often, how we act. Maybe there's a, they feel their job security is threatened. I, you know, I hitched my wagon to this John the Baptist guy, even though he was kind of weird. I thought he was going to lead to something. And now this other guy's coming, and my boss doesn't even seem to be concerned about it. I mean, this is, this is an old dynamic, and it still happens in the world today, in the church world today. I mean... Watch what happens when a new church is planted in town, especially 
if that new church is quickly successful. You know, feathers get ruffled when this happens. You know, even worse, if, so, if a mega church erupts in the area, oh man, it's all kind of... Suddenly the ministerial meetings are really populated. Everybody's got something to talk about. It's just human nature. Local pastors, I've seen, all, when I say local, not talking about this locale, but in general, they respond very much like John's disciples. And it's, you know, it's not just religious circles. You see this in secular circles as well. Watch what happens if a super Walmart or a Costco comes to town. Some people love it. They think it's just the greatest thing ever. Other people hate it. They're just you know, passionately opposed to it. I tell you what, in all my years as a Christian, over 37 now, I've seen moves of God come, and I've seen moves of God go. And for some reason... You know, it's typical that the last move of God attacks the next move of God. Right? Something new happens. It's a fresh wind of the Spirit. But the last group, they've become experts at the last move of God. They've invested decades of their life into it. They know the lingo. They got the connections. And suddenly this new thing starts? Very unsettling. And so it's common to see the last move attack attack the next move. Personally, my deep personal conviction, I don't want to do that. I've seen that happen too many times. I, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be the next car on that train. How about you? If, if the next move comes and it's actually God, I don't want to be part of it. I don't try to be holding back. For some reason, those who made their name living out on the cutting edge in the last move feel it's necessary to attack those willing to go out a little bit further than they did on this current move. They forget what it was like when they started and how everyone attacked them. I don't know. Let's learn from these mistakes. Let's not be like John the Baptist's disciples. But John got it right. I mean, his disciples were kind of stirred, but... But not so with John the Baptist. John, at least at this point, he's comfortable. He's comfortable with the situation. He's comfortable in his own skin. He knows who he is. He knows what he's been called to do. And he's very much at peace with it. Listen to his response in verse 27. To this, John responds. A person can receive only what is given to them from, from above. By this, John is saying that he knows what he's been given from heaven. He knows the role he has to play in this great unfolding drama of redemption. He knows his part. Verse, 30, uh, verse 28 of John 3, he says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. Not only does he know what his role is, he's also quite comfortable with the fact of what his role is not. He's not the Messiah. You know, the whole team, the whole team is successful when everybody plays their role and their position, especially if they play, play them well. Man, imagine playing baseball and the catcher wants to run to the mound to throw the ball and then run back behind the plate to catch the ball. It's just impossible. But if he stays behind the plate and catches the ball and does it well and calls a good game, Team's going to be successful. He can't play more than one position. Doesn't that make sense? 
So if we know our role, and if we play it well, the whole team does better. To use a biblical example, the whole body is healthy when each does what it was created to do. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 15 to 20 says this. This is what St. Paul wrote. He says, now if the foot were to say, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts in one body. John the Baptist knows well his part in the body. He's the friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man at the wedding. Verse 29 of chapter 3. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And this is now complete. He knows his part. He knows he's, he's not the, the bridegroom and that the bride doesn't belong to him. He's the best man, right? He gets to stand with the bridegroom and rejoices with him in the role he has to play. My brother Robert was the best man at the wedding. If he tried to knock me down and become the groom that day, we'd have had a problem, right? Nadine would not have been happy. But my brother knew his role that day. I got to be the best man at my other brother's wedding. I didn't want to marry his wife. <laughs> it's good when you know your role. And then he says, in verse 30, John the Baptist says these great words. He says, he must become greater. I must become less. Such a simple, yet profound statement. It makes me think of the concept of shelf life. What do you mean when I say shelf life? When Nadine and I were first dating, I was a stock clerk at a local fruit and vegetable store. You guys have heard the story of how we met. While I worked there, one of the skills I picked up, you know throughout life you have all these different jobs, you usually pick something up along the way, and these, these, these skills, these, these traits, these abilities, they kind of go along with you in life. But one of the things I learned in that job was how to stock shelf. I learned the importance of stocking a shelf properly. That, that you needed to position the label so it faced forward, so that when the customer came, they could see what it was. And if they took a bottle out, that the next one would show the label as well. It was good for advertising. You know? So, I don't know, I might be a little OCD, but so this really worked for me, okay? I really like the... Like, Nadine makes fun of me. I'm probably the only, should I tell them that? I'm probably the only. So, if we use peanut butter, <laughs> I don't like when the peanut butter is messy inside the jar. <laughs> so I'll take one of the spatulas, I'll scrape the sides, so it's all nice and smooth. So, uh, like I said, maybe a little more than just a little bit of OCD. So this stock shelf and thing, this worked for me. I liked everything 
nice and neat and orderly. If you come to my house, you see my home office, everything is, everything's neat, right? Okay. I think maybe you would like this beard to be a little bit neater, but anyway, back to stocking shelves. Positioning the labels, right? That was important. But also what was important was rotating the stock. One of the first days on the job, they tell me to stock the shelf. I just, I'm just putting stuff up there, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. You got to take the old stuff off first. Well, why? Because it's older. And you want the newest stuff to be in the back, sell the old stock first so nothing goes out of date. Oh, I never did this before, but that makes sense to me. These items had a shelf life. So I was, I was thinking about that as I read these verses today. The new stuff went in the back. So, have you ever wondered if everything in life has a shelf life? I mean, I have. Now, the truth of the gospel, that's eternal. There, there are some things that never change. Right? The what we believe in our faith, that's unchangeable. Jesus Christ is Lord, period. That's unchangeable. He's the only way to the Father, period. That's unchangeable. But the how that we, of, of, of how we practice our church, how we do it, how we practice our faith, oh man, lots of room for change in that. It's changed dramatically over the centuries. What we experience right here, right now, this morning, is very different than the way it was done 30 years ago or 50 years ago, a couple of hundred years ago. The how changes. I'm preaching off on an iPad today. They didn't do this a decade ago, right? Most of you, we had a conversation this morning. Very few people carry a Bible anymore, right? You've got to have Wi-Fi because everybody's got 20 different versions of the Bible on their phone. The how has a shelf life. The what? It's eternal. Never goes out of date. Never expires. But the how? We've got to have lots of room. The shelf life, rotating stock on how. I mean, just to use the vineyard movement as an example, 30 years ago, 30 odd years ago, when the vineyard came on the scene, and it was radical. It was cutting edge. Oh my God, they had drums in church on Sunday. They, this, was, this was a big deal. People were upset. There was electric guitars. The absence of hymnals. This was just earth-shattering. How could you have church music without a hymnal? They flashed them up on a screen. And they said the same words over and over and over again. <laughs> Worship just went on and on. People were raising their hands. They had blue jeans and flip-flops. This was like, this was horrific, scandalous. We laugh now because it's so commonplace. They had a ministry time after the message. This was crazy, radical stuff back then. But heck, nowadays, most Baptist churches do all the things I just described, or many of them. John the Baptist knew what few other people know, that his ministry had a shelf life. He had, he had a function to fulfill. He had a role to play. I've learned over the years that it's good to stop when God says stop. Our countryside is dotted with empty landmarks, empty church buildings, crumbling testimonies to what God once did. But he's not doing today. 
Does it mean it didn't happen then or was it bad when it happened? No. It just means he's not doing it now. People, listen to me. It's good to stop when God says stop. It's never good to keep going after he stopped. Nothing good comes of it. I've seen pastors make this mistake. Their time is done. They've fulfilled their role, their purpose. They've done the things that they're called to do. And it's really time for them to move on. But for some reason, they don't. Maybe there's a sense of security where they are, or they've got relationships there, or they like the area, or whatever it is. But they stay longer than the grace to stay there does. And and I've seen guys in the last year and the last two years, they undo all the good they did, or much of it, in the previous time. It's good to stop when God says stop. I've certainly seen prophetic people make this mistake. In some type of public gathering, powerful anointing comes on them, they begin to prophesy. Man, you can really feel the weight of the Spirit on their words. A few sentences in, the anointing lifts, but man, they got momentum. They could feel that this was good. They, they got adrenaline. Their lips keep moving, <laughs> even though God stopped speaking. Right? And it's good to stop when God says stop. I mean, everybody else in the room knows God stopped speaking, except for that poor person. Does that make them a, a false prophet? I don't think so. I think it makes them human. Maybe they need a little bit more spiritual maturity. But my point is, it's good to go when God says go. It's good to stop when God says stop. John the Baptist, he seemed to get this. He certainly knew when to go. He knew when to step up. In John chapter 1, we looked at a few weeks back, verses 29 to 31, he knew when to go. He knew when his moment was. He knew when he was to speak, when he was to step up. This is what it says, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. He knew when to go. He knew when to step up, but he also knew when to step back. He knew when to stop. Verse 30, he must become greater, I must become less. We can learn a lot from John the Baptist here in chapter 3. If I could, I would want to challenge every church planter with this question. What's the shelf life of your church plant? (laughs) I want them to know that. Because you've got to know in their head, they think this is going to last forever. This is awesome. And it's going to be this monument to God validating me for all time. (laughs) Or maybe it won't. What if? What if life is just one grand cosmic relay race? And our portion is simply to run the race marked out for us until time comes to pass the baton to the next person. That's not failure. Actually, that's great success. And in the end, all all the running is sharing the prize. It's it's all the same in the end. If you're the guy who starts the race, the relay race, or if you're the guy that crosses the finish line, 
They all get a medal. And it's both humbling and liberating to realize that I was never created. And it was never God's intention that I run the entire race by myself. I need other people. But I can do my part. I can fulfill my role in the body, my role on the team, my role in the relay race. Everybody wins. John the Baptist seemed to get a hands a grip on this. I think we can learn from him. No one person has what it takes to do it all. Rather, we're all part of a greater whole. With Jesus Christ as the head. And it's wonderful for us to know. It's, it's good for me to know. It's good for you to know who you are and where you fit. It's taken me most of my life to figure this out. But it's a worthwhile endeavor. It's taken me a lifetime to figure out who I am, to be comfortable in my own skin, to be at peace with my personal convictions and my beliefs. I rarely feel the need to war over it. I'm pretty settled in myself for what I believe. And if others don't feel that way, that's okay too. I'm not saying people have to agree with me. I'm just letting you know it really feels good to know the role I'm to play and who's God made me to be. I can humbly tell you I like me. That's not a little thing. It's taken me too many decades of my life to get to a place that say, I like me. A few years ago, I went through just a terrible spiritual and emotional trial. It, it included deep rejection, some very painful betrayal from people that I really trusted. But I can honestly tell you this morning that out of the ashes came this deep-seated conviction. And it was this. I like me. I really like who God's made me to be. I fit in my own skin. Kind of like the whole David and Saul's armor thing. Another man's armor, it just didn't fit me. But who God's made me to be and what he's equipped me with, it fits me. And it took that tragic event for me to discover this. It's a painful endeavor to try on so many other people's armor thinking you can be just like them. It's such a waste of time. And I finally got to the end of it. But it was painful. <clears throat> so like I said, I like me. I fit in my skin. I know what I believe in. It works for me. I believe I fit in who God has actually made me to be. And I'm good with it. And I think it's good. I've discovered that I'm relational. And I'm revelatory. <laughs> that I'm pastoral and I'm prophetic. I've learned that I'm a minister. I think I'm a pretty good minister. I'm a terrible businessman. <laughs> I'm really not a businessman. There are some people who have gifting and anointing for that. God bless them. We need them in the body. I need them on my team. But I've discovered along the way, 
I'm much better at ministry than business. One of the reasons I told Nadine, I don't think I could ever make it as an itinerant. I got a bunch of friends that what they do for a living is they travel around and they speak places, but they got to keep writing books and producing tapes and, you know, booking appearances to go speak at places like, oh, just shoot me now. I don't like any of that stuff. I just couldn't do it. Promote yourself, promote yourself, promote yourself. Not for me. I, I know that I love to color outside the lines. I find pleasure in disrupting the status quo. Has anybody detected that about me yet? <laughs> Why? Is it because I like to aggravate people's soul? No. Because for some reason, the way God's created me, I can see the potential. I can see the possibilities of freedom beyond those limitations. And a fire burns in me for it. I understand dreams. I see visions. And I actually see that as normal Christianity. I've learned about myself that I'm more comfortable planting seeds than I am harvesting them. And it's all good because unless somebody plants, there ain't going to be nothing to harvest, right? Somebody got to plant seeds. I like that part. I love planting seeds, spiritual seeds. I'm much more interested in helping individuals grow spiritually than I am in growing a church numerically. These are just a spattering of things that I've discovered about myself. I've figured out what my role is on the team, in the body, on the relay race. C.S. Lewis has said that true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. One of the ways that we can think less of ourselves is when we become comfortable in our own skin, when it fits, when you know who you are. If you know those things, there's a whole lot less of introspection that, that goes on. You just are who you are. So uh, I'll be 54 next month. At 54, it's taken me this long to finally become comfortable in my skin. It's wonderful. I encourage you. It's worth it to discover that. I think John, the Baptist here, I think he fit in his skin. He knew what his role was. He knew the role he had to play on the team. It worked for him. And even though his disciples were getting shaken up by the fact that Jesus' ministry was becoming more popular than their ministry, he was good with it. He was good with it because he knew who he was. All right, back to the text. Let's pick up at verse 31. For the, for the rest of this um, message, let's, let's switch to the, for the message, rest of this sermon, let's switch to the message translation of the text. I like some of the nuances that Peterson uses. So verse 31 to 33, it says, The one who comes from above is head and shoulders over the messengers, over other messengers from God. The earthborn is earthbound and speak with, speaks with earth language. The heavenborn is in a league all his own. He sets out the evidence of what he saw and heard in heaven. No one wants to deal with these facts. But anyone who examines this evidence will come to stake his life on this, that God himself is the truth. Verse 34 to 36, the one that God sent speaks God's words. And don't think the nations 
excuse me, and don't think he rations out the spirit in bits and pieces. The father loves the son extravagantly. He turned everything over to him so he could give it away, a lavish distribution of gifts. That is why whoever accepts and trusts the son gets in on everything, life complete and forever. That's also why the person who avoids and distrusts the son is in darkness and doesn't see life, all the experiences of God, all he experiences of God is darkness, and an angry darkness at that. John here wants everyone to know where Jesus came from, that Jesus is different from everyone else, that he came from above, meaning that Jesus came from heaven. Not only is Jesus different, but he's head and shoulders above every other previous messenger of God. Jesus is greater than everyone else. He's heaven-born, and as, as Peterson puts it here in the message, he's in the league all his own. He's telling us here that Jesus is a uniquely reliable revelation because he's got the Holy Spirit without measure. In contrast to previous prophets. See, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit would come and would rest upon a person temporarily. Anointing would flow, and they would speak, or they'd act in power, and then the Spirit would lift. Not so with Jesus. He and the Spirit have always been one. And this has profound implications for us under the New Covenant. I love how Peterson put it in verses 34 and 35 of John 3. He says, the one that God sends speaks God's words. And don't think that he rations out the spirit in bits and pieces. The father loves the son extravagantly. He's turned everything over to him. Why? So he could give it away. A lavish distribution of gifts. Extravagant love is shared among the Trinity. Jesus has the spirit without measure and in turn lavishly distributes his gifts to us. In John 14, 12, Jesus said, said this. He said, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I'd like to see some of those greater things. Joel prophesies of this day in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, he says, And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. We see that fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. God pours out his spirit in, in power. Matter of fact, and, and Peter as he addresses the crowds, he quotes these very same verses from Joel chapter 2. Now the Spirit came with such anointing and with such power that the people who were observing, those who were watching, um, they really misunderstood what was going on. I skipped over a verse, let me back up. Just before Pentecost, on the day Jesus was ascending into heaven, he gave his disciples this instruction in Acts chapter 1. 
He says, this is verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this is the promise. This and the promise of Joel is what we see fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the Spirit comes with such power that the people who are observing, they think, they think the disciples are drunk. <laughs> what do drunk people look like? I know there's a few people in here who have seen a drunk person once or twice in their life. Do they look like they're under control? <laughs> they, it's kind of messy, right? The Spirit of God is moving. We have Old Testament prophecy. We have Jesus himself promising it. And the day comes. And it comes in such a manner. It comes in such an expression that the people around who are watching this, though it's 9 o'clock in the morning, they think these guys are drunk. It makes me wonder, what were they doing? What did it actually look like? It didn't look like this. It doesn't look like our service this morning. I'm not knocking you. I'm just saying it looked different than this. It probably didn't look very respectable. So much so that in John 2, 13 and 15, this is what Peter says. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this, this is that. This is what the was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This is Joel chapter 2. This is God pouring out his spirit on all flesh. I don't know. This sounds to me like a lavish distribution. Sounds like, like a lavish distribution. It sounds like the spirit being poured out lavishly. Also sounds kind of messy. But it's really in the book. And I don't think I'm taking any of this out of context. Read it for yourself. You come to a different conclusion, talk to me about it. I'm happy to listen. But the Spirit was poured out that day as it was promised by God. And it was kind of messy. I don't know about you, but I'm up for it. I'm up. I'm eager for some lavish distribution. Let it be so, Lord. Let it be here. Let it be with us. And Lord, let it really be you. I could dig lavish distribution of his spirit. I don't really like it too much when our flesh gets in the mix. But you know what? Our flesh always gets in the mix. I don't care how nice and neat and tidy our services are. Flesh still gets in the mix. I'd rather have the spirit with a little flesh mixed in than have no spirit with a little bit of flesh mixed in. How about you? Verse 36. I'll finish up chapter 3. That is why whoever accepts and trusts the Son gets in on everything, life complete and forever. And that is also why the person who avoids and distrusts the Son is in the dark and does not see life. All the experiences of God is darkness, and an angry darkness at that. Here we have that word trust again, trust and, and distrust. We're all on a journey. 
And we're learning how to trust this God of ours who is rich in mercy and who loves us lavishly with a great love. What Peterson communicates as angry darkness here in the message, the NIV, the New International Version, calls wrath. Commentary, Merrill C. Tenney uh, writes in his commentary on the Gospel of John on this verse here, he talks about the word wrath. This is, this is uh, Tenney's um, quote. He says, the word does not mean the word does not mean a sudden gust of passion or a burst of temper. Rather, it is the settled displeasure of God against sin. Period. It is the settled displeasure of God against sin. Period. It is the divine allergy to moral evil, the reaction of righteousness to unrighteousness. As I've told you before, the wrath of God is never directed at his children but at the disease of sin ravaging their bodies. God is not an abusive father eager to brutalize his children. And when we think of wrath, that's usually the picture we have in mind. That's a false picture. That is not the truth. Rather, he is an extraordinarily loving heavenly father who has reconciled the world to himself in Christ by taking on himself the only cure for sin, which is the wrath of God. If sin is the disease, if sin is cancer, then the wrath of God is the chemotherapy, directed at the disease and not at the person. So, that wraps up chapter 3 of John's Gospel. We'll begin chapter 4 next time. Let's stand and pray. Father, I pray for my friends today. I pray for myself. Lord, I pray that we would discover who we are in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would come to know who you made us to be. I pray that we would know that truth and it would completely liberate us. Lord, set us free from having to carry and try to work with somebody else's armor, somebody else's costume, Somebody else's mask. Lord, we thank you. I believe, Lord, that when you looked at us and you made us, you said it is good, that you were well pleased. Lord, I pray that you'd make us to be more like you, that we'd fit in our skin, that we'd be like John the Baptist, that we'd know our role to play on the team, in the body, in the relay race, and that we'd do it with passion, that we'd do it with gusto, that we would enjoy life because we're doing the things you created us to do. And Lord, in your great mercy, would you prune from our vine anything that's grown, that's not been part of your purpose, that's sucking the life out of us, that's wasting our energy. Lord, would you gracefully, graciously, lovingly take your shears to our vine and prune us so that what you created us to be, the things you've created us to do, could bear rich and abundant fruit. Make it so, God. Lord, we pray for Charlottetown Community Church. Lord, we pray that we would be light in darkness. That we would be a, a light set on a hill. Lord, I pray that we would be a safe place. I pray that we would be a place where people can come 
when they need to be loved. Lord, I pray that this would be a place that's earmarked, identified by your presence in our midst. And Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you during the week.